Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you. The Tim Hill Thirsty Thursday live stream from 7 until 9 weekly. Here's your host, Tim Hill. Boom, I'm in the room. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to this special edition. I have a couple of fighter pilots. Not just fighter pilots, but they are instructors. They teach the Top Gun pilots how to do it. So, but before we get cracking, just a couple of uh, housekeeping points are coming live to you from the Hill Manor. And if you have a look up here, I've got a book. Book's just coming out. It's available on Amazon. If you want to know how to be a uh, a guest or a host um, on on this platform or any other platform, that's the book to get. Trust me. There's 16 top hosts, myself being one of them, have contributed to this book. It's available on Amazon. Have a look at it. And um, if you want to get into hosting or if you want to get into guesting, there's a guest version of it as well. Feel free. You can also support the channel by clicking the like button, subscribing to the channel, and if you're fairly really generous, you can buy me a coffee. So, without further ado, let's get on with it. What we got coming up? So, this week we've got a fighter pilot special. Next week, next oh Tuesday, don't forget the the awesome quizzes and fun facts. If you want to go back and look at this week's, they are hilarious. The Halloween special is pretty awesome. The uh, <laughs> the Tuesday regular one, pretty good as well. Um, like I said, this week, got the fight pilots. They're all lined up in the green room. They are going to be with us in seconds few. Um, next week, we've got firefighter special. I've got four fire chiefs coming on from around the world to tell us how they deal with trauma and stuff like that on a daily basis with their people. And then the following week, I've got Service Dogs UK. They are service dogs. Uh, it's a charity that's set up to look after to guys that have got uh, complex PTSD and they, they work together with dogs to, to um, help them when they're getting stressed and stuff like that, to calm them down. Amazing. So, without further ado, let's um, let's just have a look in the chat box. Hey, uh, good evening, Keith. Um, I hope the Duchess is well. Um, good evening, Richard. We've got a fantastic show tonight. So if you've got any questions, get them in the, uh, the boss name, put a Q beside it, uh, so we know it's a, it's a question and we can look at it. Um, when we get there. So, let's bring in my guests. <laughs> Welcome, Slice and Apollo. That's your call sign. Hey, Tim, how are you? Yeah, I'm pretty good. How are you guys? We're doing great over here uh, in Arizona. We got some rain and hail uh, just about an hour ago, which is very, very uncommon yeah. in the desert. 
that's what we've got here at the moment. Well, not so much the hail, but we've got an awful lot of rain. <laughs> we've had a yeah. storm come through the last couple of days, and it's extremely wet in these parts. Ah, that's what I hear. <laughs> so let's um, let's get you introduced. So um, Slice, if you want to go first and just let us know a little bit about yourself, how you became a, a pilot and and what you're up to at the moment, and uh, and then we'll have a look at Apollo uh, and get his story. So you're in the room. Yeah, so I'm a uh, uh, husband, dad, a Catholic Christian. Um, I got four kids running around somewhere. Um, my wife has a couple of them out right now. Uh, let's see here. I got bit by the, uh, the piloting bug as a young kid. Um, and you know, at seven years old, I built a little fighter jet model on the table with my dad at 12. I was standing on the flight deck with my uncle as he was uh, doing engine runs on commercial airliners. Uh, by 16, I found myself flying civilian airplanes. And then at 21, I, I joined the Air Force and um, started my path to be a, uh, a fighter pilot. So I competed. And unlike Drew, big brain Drew here, uh, Apollo, um, I didn't get selected to go to um, weapons school, but I am an, uh, a fighter pilot instructor uh, in the schoolhouse here in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, some other things you had talked about is kind of what we're working on now. Well, Drew and I and um, about 40 other fighter pilots, we um, basically started writing books. Um, they're called Single Seat Wisdom because we're single seat fighter pilots. Um, and Single Seat Wisdom, we, we share uh, stories with the world um, that are short and impactful. And it's been a very purposeful project. All of the pilots involved in that project um, contribute to a children's cancer nonprofit as well. Um, so that's kind of what we're working on right now is, is sharing, giving back um, for all of the, the life lessons and all of the uh, goodness that's uh, come our way uh, in life as fighter pilots. Yeah, and I, I would say uh, for mine, my story is a little bit different. I I uh, didn't really grow up with a military family or anything, but I, I like to say that I got lost on my way to university and ended up at the Air Force Academy. Uh, the Air Force Academy is, is our military uh, college for the Air Force. Once you graduate there, you become uh, you get commissioned as an officer. And so uh, while I was at the Air Force Academy, I got to do a summer program where we got to jump out of airplanes. And then after that, I tried out to be a jump instructor, a skydive instructor. So that's what I did for three years in college uh, and fell in love with uh, being airborne and not being stuck at a desk for a job. And so after that, I applied and got accepted into pilot training. I uh, did well in pilot training and got to fly F-16 fighter jets and then eventually just kept uh, kept going with the pain and, and applied and got accepted into weapons school, which is the Air Force's version of Top Gun, Top Gun being for the Navy. And, and now we're here trying to help other people and, and really just give back, especially the lessons that we've learned from our career to try to help others. Amazing. So the difference then uh, from the weapons school for the US Air Force, is that different to the, the top gun school for the Navy, for the US Navy? Or... Yeah. Is it the same that the Navy just want to sort of big themselves up a bit more? Yeah, it's it's the same concept. Um, but uh, yeah, the Navy just like to show off and they get all the movies and the Hollywood <laughs> uh, contracts. So 
it's it's a similar concept. You you are learning how to be the best instructor that you can be, and then when you graduate from those schools, you go back to your units and you become kind of the chief instructor. So you instruct instructors how to instruct. Uh, the difference being the the Navy version, the Top Gun, is only a couple weeks, maybe I think six or eight weeks. Uh, the Air Force's version is almost six months. And so uh, it is way more in depth uh, and arguably way better, but I am biased. So, <laughs> so, so down to the curriculum of it all then, is, 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 is it similar to sort of, or, or is it slightly slower paced with the Air Force than, than the, the Navy? Because they, the, the Navy sort of cram it in. If you, if you go by the the, the Top Gun films, um, it looks like that that they're, they're, they're there and they're, they're buzzing around. They're doing about three or four missions a day, and uh, and then at the end of it, there's, there's, they're going to a war, and everybody sort of at the end of it comes home and, and starts kissing and hugging each other. I guess with the with the Air Force, that they take a little bit longer to 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 spend it out to learn a little bit more to be a bit more clinical. Um, uh, and I guess there's, there's not so much sort of kissing and holding hands and things like that in the Air Force. Yeah, there there was no kissing and holding yeah. hands in uh, in the Air Force. I think that's just a Navy thing, for sure. <laughs> I know Air Navy they they like to sort of cross dress occasionally. Uh, well, particularly the Royal oh, Marines. <laughs> having, having worked uh, with the Royal Marines, and occasionally yeah. I have been known to cross dress with them. Oh jeez. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think going going back to your question of the curriculum, um, the from from my understanding from the the Navy side for Top Gun, it is it is very fast paced, um, and they don't uh, they don't cover as much. Whereas in the Air Force, it's still very fast paced, uh, but you cover a, a real breadth of not only your being an expert in your uh, airplane, so the F sixteen for me, but then also we branch out into what we call being a mission commander, where now you are in charge of an entire mission, which could be 20, 50, 100 different aircraft. And you are essentially in charge of planning this effects-based mission, um, whether that's, you know, trying to destroy targets or there's a, a lot of different, you know, infill uh, troops with, uh, with cargo planes. And right, so you are, so you have to know a lot about all of the different capabilities in the Air Force in order to orchestrate, hey, here's how we want to achieve a mission. So we spend uh, quite a few weeks just in, you know, working these really large force missions in order to get good at mission planning, executing, and then debriefing what we call the, the mission commander role. Mm. I've got a, a question coming from uh, one of the viewers. Um, in your opinion, <laughs> are the better qualified pilots navy or i think we've kind of answered that one <laughs> well i mean rivalry? where do where do airplanes fly yeah on the boat <laughs> or in the air so, <laughs> so i'd say I the air force you... uh, well tim i think there's there's something to be said about the the training uh and the dollars allocated um to different mission sets and in the air force we are the air force we have the most airplanes we have the most pilots and so much of the budget from the air force side goes to training pilots right so if this isn't a dig on other services but 
um, the Navy, I would assume that a lot of their dollars go to boats and stuff mm-hmm. that floats on the water, right? So having just a smaller budget for stuff drives a lot of the the training that you're going to get, which if if you don't use it, you lose it, right? So it's, it's something where you constantly practice and train for. Um, and you have those different experiences that definitely lend to being a better, stronger, more capable force. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like the British Army. Um, we, we train hard, fight easy. And quite often, the, the, the training is way harder than when you're actually out on an operation. Um, it's certainly more intensive. Um, you, you can, it's quite funny, you, you, you go through um, what we call pre-deployment training and that normally for us is sort of, we start six months out and, and it ends up sort of the last sort of couple of weeks intensive exercise, putting, bringing all the different elements together. Um, and then when you, you, you finally get out in an operation, you tend to find that 90% of what you've been training for never happens <laughs> so but but whatever does happen you are then ready for it to happen um and i don't know what it's like for you guys doing pre-deployment training but i guess for pilots it, it doesn't make a lot of difference whether you're uh, on a training mission in the us or whether you're flying missions over afghanistan you get into that that seat and you take off you can be sort of um, something can go wrong and you've got to deal with it. Is that is that the case for you guys? I I think the the training yeah can be harder in certain cases. Um, I I don't know if Afghanistan's a good um, a good thing to compare uh, who we're we're trying to fight nowadays. Um, it's not really a secret anymore, but China is definitely a much different beast than. Afghanistan, right? So, um, in Afghanistan as a pilot, you don't have a whole lot of, you don't have a whole lot of worries that you would have if you were, uh, over the skies of China. So Mm -hmm. you can use your imagination there. I'll keep it vague, but you can imagine the differences in, in training scenarios as well as what country you're over definitely drives the, the, uh, pucker factor, if you will, (laughs) that you're going to experience fighting a certain country. Yeah. I know, I know from from being on the ground doing ground operations in Afghanistan, um, we were on occasion pleased to see you guys coming in with uh, with your fast stuff and dropping some stuff to deter the types that were having a go at us. Um, and it certainly got me out of a sticky situation on one particular time. I mean, we we have been in contact this particular day for nine hours. <laughs> we were in contact with. We went in, effectively we got dropped off by a helicopter and for for some reason uh, once we got onto the ground the helicopter cleared off and we lost comms and we got into this particular village um, we got opened up on uh, and we spent the day sort of running around trying to avoid getting shot at and every time we went somewhere different they would open up from a different direction and when we finally got in the comms we brought in some fast air, dropped dropped a couple of five hundred pounders, uh, and a helicopter came in, picked us up, and distracted us. But <laughs> we was almost down to the last round per man, wow. <laughs> saving one round for ourselves. Um, yeah, uh, but must have been Air yeah. Force pilots. 
Yeah, it must have been. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they certainly came in fairly quickly and uh, they turned what was left of... I mean, we were dropping them like falling plates initially, but uh, they just kept coming at us. And mm. and it was a tough old day. We'd run out of, or run out of water, run out of, almost out of ammunition. And... Um, yeah, it was a tough day at the office that day. Um, but there you go. We didn't lose anybody, and they did. So that was yeah. a good day in itself. Um, right, is that another question coming in? Yeah, let's just pop that one up. I don't know if you guys can say the questions. <laughs> Bell detector, good evening. Um, seeing the way some <laughs> Navy pilots fly. <laughs> I need planes that float. <laughs> <laughs> I like this the the where this conversation is going. Where it's just a dig on the navy. Yeah, let's the keep whole that time. Up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I have to be a little bit careful because I'm in a navy town. And yeah, don't yeah, get, yeah. <laughs> don't know how I'm setting too much. In fact, we're all on the same um, team. Absolutely. I mean, tomorrow I'm I'm going on board a ship. I'm going on awesome. the first Sea Lord ship tomorrow, his flagship, which wow. is still a serving ship, HMS Victory. Yeah. And so I'm on the air tomorrow. Do you know HMS Victory? No. It's the oldest warship in existence. It's um, wow. Nelson's flagship at the Battle of uh, Trafalgar in 1805. And it's still a commissioned warship to this day. Uh, and it's the first Sea Lords flagship. So I'm on there tomorrow lunchtime in the senior rates mess for a, a, a meat raffle. <laughs> wow. Oh, nice. Cool. That sounds fun. Uh, a little bit of a privilege one gets occasionally. But there you go. So look at the operational tours then. Um, I guess both of you guys have done your, your fair fair share of flying over hostile territory, um, brassing up. Uh, the enemy, as such. How how does the U.S. Air Force look after your mental well-being when you're on operations? Want to kick that one off? <laughs> um, so I, I I think the answer is uh, they really didn't for a long time. Uh, there there weren't a lot of uh, things that were set up for mental health. It wasn't wasn't something that was talked about for a long time. Uh, you know, especially pilots were were very hesitant to be able to say anything because um, for a pilot, if anything ends up on your medical record, there's a chance that you won't be able to fly. And for a pilot, flying is everything. And so, so at, at first, it, um, people didn't talk about it a lot. And and you know, to I guess to the Air Force's defense, the way that fighter pilots train and brief and debrief and the mission, the camaraderie, right? They, they have a lot of things going for it um, to help negate a lot of things such as PTSD or different scenarios. So when, you know, his, historically, if you were to look at the rates, fighter pilots, at least on paper, have a, a very low uh, rate of PTSD. Uh, something that I think I found interesting, again, this, this, is, this whole topic of mental health has, has really come to the forefront in the military's mind with 
um, there's been a lot of suicides in, in at least the U.S. military. And so they've taken a, a look at a lot of these things. And I think it's really a really healthy place that we've gone to to try to get people health uh, and help. Another thing that the Air Force has, it's really come up in the last, I think, year or two, uh, is a concept that's called, uh, oh man, it's moral, um, shoot, I'll think of it. Uh, but it, it's, it's this idea that, uh, you just, w when you go to a war zone, you might not have, um, what would be diagnosed as PTSD. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there may be some moral trauma that, that you experienced where, where you were put in a place that you had to make a decision, um, to take another person's life. And, uh, even though that like clinically may not, uh, cause trauma, there, there's a certain effect that that causes to any human being that, that takes another life. And so the Air Force is kind of looking at that. Our chaplain corps has really kind of stepped up and, and talked moral injury. There it is. I knew I get it. The, the term is moral injury uh, that, that they've started talking about of just this idea that no, even, even though you, you are functioning in society um, and can still do your job, there's still a part of that uh, that is uh, very difficult to take another person's life. Uh, and, and you have to look yourself in the mirror uh, every day. And so I, I think if nothing else, the Air Force, they do have uh, processes that are set up for PTSD for people who are struggling with mental health, but it's just become more of a conversation, which I think is, is a, you know, the first step to just acknowledging that going to war is difficult, whether you're being shot at or whether you're the one taking other lives and, and how we deal with that and process that as we get reintegrated back into society. Yeah. And I think, you know, Drew brought up a, a, a bunch of good points. Um, the first one is the, the low rates of PTSD don't necessarily mean that there are a low amount of people or a lesser amount of people, right? That it's just how that they, how they are notated on somebody's records. Right. And as pilots, he, he mentioned it, it has lasting ramifications even outside the military. So if you try to go get a job with an airline, you're going to have issues if your medical records show that you had PTSD or that you had other uh, traumatic events go on in your life, because for, for a good reason, right? We don't want crazy people flying around big tubes filled with a bunch of uh, people in the back, right? So that kind of makes sense. It, the problem is, is if you, you get rewards for what you reward. So if you are rewarding behavior that lets people go get jobs, uh, potentially high paying salaries on the civilian side, and you can hide the fact that you are maybe mentally uh, or uh, mentally damaged, or you have a moral injury as, as uh, it's called, um, you know, that can, that could be the, the wrong output uh, that you're looking for there. The other things um, I think that I learned from the, the couple of deployments that I was on is that I had more problems with my first deployment, which um, you know, we had at Kandahar cause you, you've been there. So like at Kandahar, we had, we were shelled 56 times when I was there and I found that, that I didn't know it at the time, but that, that created more, uh, issues for me in the future. And what I didn't know is that when you're on the defense and you don't have the ability to go on the offense, so you're just hunkering down, um, that tended to cause, um, more problems, at least, uh, mentally than, uh, my second deployment where we were in a, a little bit better of a place and we were more offensively postured and what we were doing. 
Um, a couple of the other things too, that really turned me off, um, you know, Drew hinted at it, but the meetings. So just, I just remember post deployment, um, my, my first deployment, which, you know, it was, only, it was only 10 years ago, but coming back, I had just been gone for seven months. Yeah. I was newly married. Um, when I, you know, I was newly married for only six months or so. And my wife and I had a long distance relationship, um, prior to our marriage and I was young and impressionable. Right. And so I went on this deployment, I got home and then I realized there were these very rapid, uh, forced scheduled meetings with people that went through a checklist. Um, and it was part of our, our reintegration into society. And the way that I took it was those meetings were there, um, to find out if we were crazy so that they could, put that in our medical records and then we wouldn't get to fly. So for me, those meetings were a huge turnoff and I wasn't explained the why behind it. So anytime that I was scheduled and forced, literally forced to go to these meetings because my medical records would turn red if I didn't go, um, I would sit down in this meeting and it was some dingbat with a sheet of paper and some questions that they were going to mark off and ask me, Hey, are you doing okay? Okay, check. Yes, he said yes. And they would go down this list of questions and then I would be like, are we done here? But it wasn't helpful. It was literally just a a, a metric that they were told to measure. And when they measured it, people would just lie to get out of the meetings. And I wasn't saying that I was lying, but I, that wasn't the right type of help, right? So the, the black and white meetings were a, a super huge turnoff for me. Um, and even more so after my second deployment and, you know, just going to different locations and stuff like that. So I think those weren't really addressed in the right way. You know, Drew hinted at it and I've seen it probably maybe in like the last year or so. Um, there's been a, a concerted effort um, to reach out and help veterans because in the U.S. we've been we've been a contingency operation since uh, late 80s, early 90s, the Gulf War era, right? So we've never really not been at war. Um, and granted, that that can drive a bunch of different conversations, whether it's politics or money, you know, because there's a lot of money wrapped up in, in fighting. Um, and now after we've pulled out of Afghanistan and we're pulling out of the Middle East and now we're back in Ukraine, right? So we've got, we've got a big problem, right? And, and war is shouldered by, the, unfortunately, the young generation, um, of a culture. And so you have all of these very impressionable, um, men and women that have gone off to war in the 18 to 24 year old, you know, age group, and they've seen and, and, and done these things. They have all these moral injuries and a lot of them probably have undiagnosed PTSD. In fact, many civilians have PTSD just from trauma that they experience in their own life. Um, but specifically to war, you know, Drew had mentioned to me a while back as I was kind of recovering about six years ago, um, he mentioned to me that you can be a just soldier in an unjust war and that, you know, you can apply that to Navy or in the Air Force. You can be a, a just airman in an unjust war. And that really took the edge off of it for me knowing that, hey, you know, I acted in in good conscience and, you know, maybe maybe what the whole big picture uh, is supporting isn't isn't the best, but um, you can be there. And whether you're you know Christian or or whatever religious background or spiritual background you have, um, that can lend a lot of um, credibility to what you're doing, and then also let you um, grow for that grow from that and lead a, a bigger life after the fact.
Yeah. Uh, and I think we've, we've come in an awful long way. I know, while, I mean, I, I retired from the British Army just four years ago. And at that time, we were, we were really going big on destigmatizing the mental health issues that guys were having. Um, when I was in Afghanistan in 2009, I saw firsthand um, how the, the, the Royal Marines were dealing with um, trauma. Um, they, they have what they call trim teams, which is trauma incident management. And when the guys have been involved with a, a, an incident, say um, they've gone out on a patrol, they've been blown up, they come back in off of that patrol. Three days later, you get a trim team comes in and they'll assess of what, what's gone on. They'll look at each individual that was involved, uh, either directly or indirectly in that incident. They'll work out who needs to, a, a one-to-one chat, who, who needs to go into a group and who needs a, a general brief and that's done and then they come back in 30 days later to reassess to see if how how the guys have been getting on um and and during this process if anybody's having difficulty sleeping having nightmares and all the rest of it um then they'll signpost them on to specialist help and then they'll come back in at the three months point and reassess and to see how people are getting on and, and at any time during that period they can they can signpost people to specialist help uh, and that's how they're trying to to deal with um, or, or or trying to sort mental health issues early on uh, and they found that by doing that they that they they taken away some of the um, the, the, the possibilities of getting complex PTSD further down the line where years ago it was just swept under the carpet. You just told the ear, have one of these, what's that? Oh, it's a man uphill. Um, nowadays, they're, they're taking it more seriously. And I guess by doing that, hopefully we won't see so many people with complex PTSD in the future. But we're still a long way from um from recognizing it from from having it completely destigmatized so the british uh, forces are, are are big into to mental health first aid um so we have everybody gets the opportunity to go onto a mental health first aid course which is looking after your own personal mental health uh, mental well-being um there are other courses you go on to, to recognise in others, uh, the management of, of mental health, and each unit has a, a dedicated um, team that, that look after people's um, mental health. Um, the regular meetings with the, with the commanders uh, of the, the different um, units, particularly when I was there, that was happening once a month. We'd have the whole, the whole of the garrison headsheds come together, have a, an overall briefing, but would have a, a, a topic of the month looking at maybe smoking or or mental health, um, or, or sexual health, that sort of thing, and then they would break down into the smaller units and have the individual commanders come in to talk about 
each individual under their command, um, uh, whether it's a physical or a mental um, issues that they're having. And so they're keeping an eye on people. And, and that went a long way to destigmatizing um, mental health that we were seeing coming through um, in, 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 the, in the garrison that I was working in, which was London Central Garrison. So we were looking after uh, the, all the guys that were doing the Queen's Guards at the time. So they, they were doing Buckingham Palace, um, yeah. St James's Palace, the Tower of London and Windsor Guard, so, uh, or Windsor Castle. And they were doing the guards on there. And what was happening, particularly during the time that we were still in combat operations in Afghanistan and Iraq, the we would get effectively broken soldiers uh, and sending our fit soldiers to the battalions that, that were deploying out. So we, we, we had more than our fair share of broken people trying to, to, to manage mounting guards. <laughs> so it was a challenge. <laughs> yeah. So, but the point I'm making is that we're going a long way in, in the British military of um, destigmatising mental health. Um, and, yeah. and and taking it really seriously, and again looking at the civilian life when 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 guys go outside, that's that's when it really starts to kick in. Once once they that that's, that security blanket's taken away, um, and they're out in the big wide world. And that's why you're seeing lots of veterans um, taking their own lives because they can't cope. They are find themselves on the street because they they can't get on with civilians, um, and for one reason or another, they find it difficult to transition into civilian life, um, and that presents lots more cha uh, challenges for ex-service people. So transitioning from the military into civilian life has been a, a, another big area that they've been looking at and, and, and trying to to look after veterans when they come out. Mm. And I know in, in America, um, you've got the Veterans uh, Administration, the VA, that go and do an awful lot of work with veterans. Mm. So how do you guys um, look after guys that are under your command uh, for their mental well-being, uh, have you have you are you making big inroads into uh, destigmatizing stuff? But before before you get onto that, I noticed there's an awful lot of stuff going on in the chat. So we just have a quick look at some people are popping questions in there. Let's pull these up. Let's have, whoop. Uh, didn't mean to do that. <laughs> just put that there. Um, I meant to do this. Let's pull it down. I saw, saw some questions coming in earlier. Oh, wow. So if you have got a question, if you put a queue in front of it, it just makes it easier for us to spot. Um, and we've had that question, I think. Um, yeah, Eurofighters. Have you had any uh, experience of Euro Eurofighters? I have not. No, I haven't either. I have a, I have a friend that flew Eurofighters, and he... he uh, he really liked it, really enjoyed it. Um, 
if a pilot says he saw a UFO, <laughs> would that be grounds for him to take mental health test on a discharged? <laughs> no. No. No, because a UFO is an unidentified flying object. So literally anything that you can't identify, you could call a UFO. Yeah. Now, if you want to talk about putting a tinfoil hat on and seeing Martians, then maybe we'll <laughs> ask the question. <laughs> but in regards to seeing unidentified objects, there's uh, uh, if a bird goes really fast past your canopy, that's an unidentified bird, which is an unidentified flying object. Yeah. And the last thing you want to do is get that in one of your engines, especially yeah, if it's a yeah. big bird. Especially if you only have one engine like we do. Yeah. <laughs> That could be a bit of a drama. Um, oh, yeah, um, Steve says your your two guests seem real cool. <laughs> Thanks. And yeah, I mean for for discussing it, this 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 topic of uh, mental health. Um, bombing range called uh, Donna Nook. Where's that then? Uh, yeah, some of the coolest pictures we see are from a lot of the low-level uh, flights that the uh, fighter jets do over there um, in the UK, and they'll stand on the top of the hill, and they'll take pictures looking down on the fighter jets as they're doing a turn, and they're just... Even I look at them like, man, that's really cool. We've got some pretty cool stuff. In fact, years ago, um, I was a hang gliding instructor. I mean, this is, this is, a, this is going back. A long time ago when hang gliding was um it wasn't quite in its infancy but it was it was a it was like in its teenage years uh so i ended up becoming a, an army hang gliding instructor or joint services we went joint services so i was teaching guys how to hang glide and um i was flying one particular day up in the welsh hills and um and i'm i'm up above the uh the um the hill and, and as I'm flying, there was Hercules came in round into the valley where I was, I was flying over <laughs> and flying underneath us. And then and then ten minutes later, a couple of fast jets came zooming in underneath me. <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah, maybe don't this hang is glide there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a great shot. I mean, um, it used to happen fairly regularly um, on this this one particular area where we were. We were flying in sort of mid Wales, so nice. That's my experience of flying. I'd just like to point out that I, I, I personally got put off flying by the uh, by the RAF, and the reason for that is that the amount of times that they mucked me about, and, and every time they seemed to put me on an helicopter to fly me around Afghanistan somewhere, somebody was trying to aim something at it, and they were throwing it around the sky. It has an idea. It has a it puts you off a bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't really like flying nowadays. So I guess you guys, it's a it's it's a occupational hazard. You have to love it. Yep. Turns out. And when uh, and when you when you stop loving it, it's time to walk away. There you go. Now, a question: Have you ever had to? Um, Pop the canopy and nip out. Knock on wood, I have not. Uh, I I have not ejected. I have crashed an airplane that I wish had an ejection seat on it. 
<laughs> Come down a bit hard, did you? Yeah, uh, yeah. We were. This was one of one of my first flights in the Air Force. We were. They. You start off on this little trainer. I mean, it's like a, uh, it's like a cardboard box with a lawnmower engine on it. And uh, we were flying in Colorado. These winds picked up, uh, kind of a crosswind as we were coming into land, and it flipped our plane over. So we crashed wing over wing, uh, off about seventy five feet off the runway. And you know, thank God our guardian angels were working overtime that day because. We landed right side up uh, and literally not a scratch on either my instructor or I. <laughs> Who was landing it? Who was in control me. of landing it? <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it was, it was me. <laughs> so you got to blame for wrecking an aircraft. Yeah, correct. <laughs> so let's go back to the, uh, the mental health aspect of it all. Are, are there systems in place? Um, uh, have they improved in the US Air Force to look after so you guys? I mean, I think I think some you you kind of hinted at it earlier, but it it's a cultural thing that takes time, right? So the the entire culture, um, you know, something that I've been pushing so hard coming from the civilian world into the military is the lack of uh, feedback from mil and this isn't like a spear at the air force because there are a lot of officers that do this very well but i would say by and large many do not uh know how to coach or provide feedback on a personal level outside of the flight environment fighter pilots especially u.s fighter pilots one of the things that um, is done the best and it is it's difficult to learn is how to debrief and debrief a flight but what is rarely done is debriefing uh, our forces and our people on just life whether that's finances or you know just what what you're what you're doing in your in your life and I, I think one of the main problems is this relativistic worldview that Anybody can do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anybody else, but then it removes any of the truths that are actually true. So when, when I don't know morally what is true, how can I debrief somebody on it? Because they're just going to think that I'm judging them because their truth is different than mine and it's confusing and it's, it, everything becomes relative and now there's nothing that's true. So I think it's a cultural thing. It's, it's been very you know, it's been propped up by our, our media and our, unfortunately, it's kind of infiltrated our, our military in regards to what you had talked about earlier. There are processes in place. There always have been, but culturally it feels robotic and people feel that people feel yeah. like they're interacting with a robot. And even though those processes are there, you can see through that because it's that sixth sense. It's, I feel like this person is running me through a checklist and they don't the empathy isn't there. That's not a real person doing this. They don't really care. And as soon as somebody, especially somebody that has trauma, myself included, you know, having these issues, mental issues, as soon as somebody picks up on that and they'll pick up on it immediately, I can talk to my own experience. If you're treating me like a checklist item, then I'm immediately going to shut off and you won't know. You won't ever get the actual truth. You won't know if what I'm telling you is true or not. So I think the cultural problem, it's going to take some time. If it feels robotic in nature at all, it's going to turn people off. 
Um, and I think we, we still, every, uh, every different group of military, you know, every service, right? So there's a bunch of different services, Air Force, Marines, Navy, what, there's the Space Force, the Coast Guard. Um, am I missing any? So out of all of these services, every service is so unique. Every culture within every service is so unique. And then um, for special operators, whether that's the Navy SEALs, um, fighter pilots, um, C-17 pilots, uh, Army uh, Rangers, you know, whatever, the Marine infantry, every culture has its own ups and downs. And and what they're looking forward to, right? So from pilots specifically, you're gonna that's gonna be a very hard nut to crack, so to speak, because you're now talking to a group of uh, highly trained individuals that on you know if the, whatever the median or the mean line is there, they're they're generally a little bit smarter than the person that can just walk and chew gum at the same time, and so you you have a, a higher trained populace that is smart enough to know if I want to get a job with the airlines after I'm done with this military, anything that I say can and will be held against me in a court of law. And I'm going to have to show up and explain, explain that away. And it's probably going to ruin my chances. So I'm just not going to say anything. So I think from a cultural standpoint, it's not going to happen in my remaining time in the military. Unfortunately, I don't need it to happen because for me, like from a selfish standpoint, but from a a a culture at large, I think it's more than just the services, the air force, Marines, Navy, like all it's different than that. And it's, it's different for every single group because they are dealing with different challenges that are usually outside of the military, whether that's family, religion, spirituality, a future job, civilian life, like you just don't know. And I know very specifically for pilots, it, that is going to be a very difficult hurdle to jump. The last thing that I'll say, so Drew can chime in here, is that the uh, the closeness to battle that, that I mean, and, and you know this too, right? Like the closer you are to battle, if you shove a knife into somebody, the trauma is different than if you see somebody that you directly killed through a targeting pod screen that's thousands of feet away, right? A, a sniper looking through a scope is going to have a different level of trauma than somebody that had to shove a knife into somebody or drop a bomb, right? So, and that's intentional is that war is becoming distant to take to take the human factor out of it. So I would say by and large pilots probably have uh in fact less PTSD than say an army ranger um strictly because we are usually distanced from the trauma. And if you think about it, if you are sitting on a big, you know, 120 cal gun 10 miles away and you shoot around, you never see, you don't even, you I mean, you, you might get some footage on who you, who you kill or the damage that you have, but you're not close up to that. So I think there's, there's something to be said about the, the, the physical proximity to what you're, what damage you're inflicting. And then the lack thereof, and in our case, as as fighter pilots, specifically to my experience, just being distanced from, uh, you know, hair, teeth, and eyeballs on the ground, um, that definitely took the edge off of the the trauma that I think you could, you know, experience going through something like that. Certainly does. Um, I mean, being up the sharp end um, on the ground, um, certainly seen that 
myself. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. and, um, and, and Tim, yeah. I, would, I would just add, I would add to that too. Uh, so th there have been a lot of things that have been put into place in the Air Force. I would say some more effective than others. One of the things that I, I think um, adds a lot of value and, and really helps the situation is when commanders and generals and, and just the, you know, the leadership in the institution start to look at mental, we call it mental health as almost like a mental fitness where, and, and we've done this. So we we're instructors at a training base right now. So we get, you know, the brand new pilots who show up um, and they've, they've put a lot of money and time and effort into um, helping these young students with, with a lot of things they do. We have like um, physical trainers that can help build um, to help keep their bodies because flying fighter jets is, is actually really, it's really hard on your physical health, your, mm -hmm. your back neck issues, neck issues. Um, there's a ton of stuff there. So they, so they bring in physical trainers to help them with that. There's a dietitian that helps, um, you know, if they want to do meal plans, they have a, a mindset coach that talks to them a lot about uh, these type things. So I think when we start to look at mental health as more of a mental fitness, now it's okay if you need a tune-up. It's okay if, if you need a mental workout. It's okay if you got a, you know, a little bit injured and now you're just trying to, to get that back to health. It, it gets away from this idea of, oh, you're broken right? Like, oh, you're messed yeah. up. Oh, yeah. you know, it's just like, no, everyone, if, if you think of your mind as, as a muscle, it's like, if you don't, if you don't use that, it's going to get flabby and it's not going to be able to perform at its peak. And so, um, again, it's, it's a small cultural thing. And that, that's one of the things I'm actually excited about in the book that again, we wrote shameless plug for single seat wisdom is a, a lot of this is just mindset stuff where, um, you are taking these lessons from, from, you know, f hundreds of years of fighter pilot, uh, tradition and lessons that are being passed on. And it's just a little mental tune up, right? It's just a little, Hey, read this book and that'll give you just a little bit of energy, a little bit of mindset training to where you just become a little more robust when that trauma starts to happen. Mm. And I think too, the, the thing that, you know, he, he had, he had hinted at is that everybody deals with it differently. Right. My, my wife used to ask me, are you okay? And that was, um, when she would ask me and use those words, she genuinely wanted to know if I was d doing fine, but those would trigger me because when she would ask it, I would think that I'm crazy. <laughs> like, are you okay? As in, are you going crazy again? And so that's how I would take it, unfortunately. So I think there's, mm. there's so many different subtleties to the human mind. The, the type A personalities that you find in, you know, cause in our, um, our Catholic men's group that drew started, there's a police officer, there's a couple of police officers and you want to talk about PTSD walking up to the side of a car with, you know, to approach a, you know, and in the U S we love our guns here. So like, you don't know if that person's going to have a gun or not. Um, but that, that daily, uh, trauma, that, that angst being on the defense, like I talked about, that's, that's real. And it's right there. And as a type a person, you want to be able to say, Hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm a man, I can deal with this. Right. But then how do you train somebody? How do you train a culture to say, you know, 
actually, you know, this kind of jacked me up and to, and to bring that out, like the mental fitness, Hey, I need a tune up versus, uh, are you okay? Right. And now you feel like you're going crazy again. Um, and then the last piece of that is specifically within the U S culture. And I would say that probably the world at large is that, you know, the, the big, the big three that I like to talk about is the mind, body, spirit, right? So we go to college to get degrees. We constantly train. We train our mindset to be stronger mentally, whether that's in mathematics or, you know, technology or engineering, right? We try to be better fighter pilots. Um, the body piece of it, we, we go to the gym and we work out because we want to look good and feel good. But then the spiritual aspect is, has been gutted from specifically American culture. And I would say across the world, the spiritual aspects of life, which are very, very non-tangible, but very real, those are gone. And when those are gone, we now have people that um, are going, well, I'm fit and I'm in shape like I did many years ago. And my mind is strong, but why am I falling apart? Right? What other, what significance does my life have? And when that's gone, you, you see increases in suicide, people living lives, looking for monetary pleasure, uh, you know, getting more stuff to try to make them feel good. And we've lost the spiritual aspect of uh, a culture that, that needs to come back. And I, I think it will. And it, and it comes back through pain and through learning this over and over. It definitely has in my life. Hmm. I think um, picking up what you said there, I mean, it's, we have something over here at the moment. There's, a, there's charities and, and there's lots of things going around to, to say that it's okay not to be okay. And yeah. we covered this a, a few weeks ago on the, on the, on the show um, where we were talking about suicide uh, and particularly veteran suicide. And the determining person that's going to take their life, you're not going to be able to see. They just don't give out any signs at all until they've been successful the first time the person that, that that's tried it a few times and, and failed they're just looking for um uh, some help but the, the the main thing is that we're trying to destigmatize that because it is a mental health issue but because because we've had this mindset for a long time uh, particularly men uh, and and military men uh, of of toughing it out and and, mm-hmm. and and sort of using that that man up pill. It's it's really difficult to break that down. To let people know that it is okay not to be okay, and if you are having a bit of a wobble, then there there's a whole host of people out there to help. And and, and the one thing that came out of what we were talking about is that. If you see somebody that's struggling, if you say to them, are you all right? Are you really all right? Then you make sure that you've got the time to invest in them to sit down and listen. Because yeah. the last thing, the, the, the worst thing you can do is saying, you're all right. Are you really all right? Oh, by the way, I've got a nip off. I've got to uh, go and get a <laughs> nip to the shops. If if you start that conversation, if you open up that can of worms, you need to to be there to listen. And sometimes that's all it takes is somebody to 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 sit down and just listen to somebody's problem, and it can help. 
Um, and and if and it just takes a couple of encouraging words to sit and listen. And and if if you just invest a little bit of time in somebody that's that's not feeling okay, you can you can save their life. And that's that's what we're trying to push, um, particularly on this channel. That, that mental health is. It's a it's a problem, and and suicide is a problem, and it's 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 unprecedented unprecedented numbers at the moment of veterans are taking their lives, uh, and because the our system is broken over here, um, when they when they, particularly for for when people come out trying to get access to to just normal medical care is is a struggle. Just trying to get to see a doctor in this country is a nightmare. Um, but to see a, a specialist counsellor for for mental health issues is even harder. I mean, they, they, you get referred from if if you get to see a doctor and they refer refer you to mental health services, it could take a year before you get an appointment to see a mental health specialist. Jeez. Yeah. By which time <laughs> you've already taken your life and it's too late. Yeah. yeah. So um, that's some of the challenges that we've got coming up in this country, and I'm sure. Yeah. That resonates across um, the rest of the, the world, particularly the Western world, where we've been particularly in, in fighting operations for the last sort of twenty odd years. Um, since yeah. well, since nine eleven, um, we haven't we haven't been out of conflict. And prior to that, through the nineties, I mean, we, we were in the Balkans during the nineties, uh, and for for the British military. We, we've been in Northern Ireland since 1969 uh, and we were there for 30 odd years. Um, to be honest, it, it was a great training ground. <laughs> Going out on, I mean, uh, live operations where you could get killed any minute was a great training ground that makes the British Army probably the best. Actually, no, it is the best army in the world. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, I won't fight I you on that one. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you, you ain't got a leg to stand on. I've worked with Americans. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys are all right. In fact, <laughs> I, I worked with um, an Air Force general. Uh, he was a fighter pilot. Um, went by the, ha uh, the, the call sign Tabasco. Um, <laughs> and I worked with him in, in Kosovo in um, 2000. Uh, he was a great guy, um, and he was in charge of the uh, what they termed um, influence, influence operations at that time. And I was I was a psyops operator, so uh, huh. I, I used to meet him up in uh, what used to be Film City, and uh, <laughs> he didn't like being on a ground job. <laughs> yeah, but he was he, he was what I think you call a full bird colonel um, mm -hmm. in the U.S. Air Force. Really nice guy. Um, so moving forward then, um, trying to, to change that mindset, it's going to take a long time, but I think each and every one of us has that um, mission to help destigmatise the, the mental health aspect uh, and, and just to let people know. Because I, I think the robustness of younger people nowadays is different to what it was 
particularly when I grew up. I mean, I grew up in a really rough area, and um, I mean, we didn't have all this tech and everything back then. We didn't even have a television. <laughs> so I didn't see a television until I was, what, around 12. Um, uh, and, was <laughs> and you had to go <laughs> to the end of the road to use a, a telephone, which is in a box on the street. <laughs> so, so tech has come in the last 50, 60 years massively raced forward to, to, to where we are nowadays. I mean, I, I'm sat in, a, in Gosport in the UK, and you guys are sat in Arizona, uh, and we're having a, a great conversation. We couldn't have done this a few years ago, that's for sure. Yeah. So, but you guys have, uh, you've got a, a, a wonderful opportunity to be able to mould young pilots coming through and, and and to let them know and to, to start that destigmatization, um, doing what you do as instructors. So let's have a look at your instructor days. Um, take us through a, a, a typical sort of um, day, week, uh, what you guys do on a daily basis. How does that work as a, a fighter pilot? As a, as a fighter pilot, or do you want to know what the students go through? No, you as instructors. Yeah, so as an instructor, I mean, I think there's a there's a common misunderstanding that many people think that fighter pilots go into work and we fly, and then we just we high five and we go to the bar and have a drink. <laughs> and if you ever find that group of fighter pilots, let me know because I want to interview and be part of that group. So that's, that's <laughs> could, a could, very... could you could you two guys do? Did, did you see what? Um, Goose and Maverick did in the first film, in the bar. Yes, yes. yes. She's, Again, she's we it. um, she's, we she's don't. Got it. Can uh, you do that? <laughs> as a as an Air Force, we generally um, do not all congregate in the uh, bathroom together as men, <laughs> um, just because that's weird. So maybe they do that in the in the Navy, but um, I have I, I tend to steer clear of those those gatherings. But I would say. Um, a couple things that are, are misnomers is generally if you're a, if you're an officer in the Air Force you will you will have a a job a de- some sort of desk job or administrative job whether you are um, yes yeah, so you'll have some sort of job that you're in charge of and then for us as instructors um, you know there are there are academic lessons that we teach um, where we're just teaching the the syllabus and and kind of what's leading up to what's next. And then if we're going to fly, there's mission planning that goes into that, you know, so the day prior there's, there's pre-brief lessons where we, we work with the students to make sure that they know what's coming up the next day. We mission plan for what we're going to go do. We'll kind of give them a, depending on the student and where they are in the, in the syllabus and their, their phase, um, and very specifically depending on the student, um, because no syllabus fits any one human being, you have to kind of tailor the training for each student. So if it's a student that's a very strong swimmer, um, I generally go in with more of a questioning type approach just to kind of see where their knowledge base is. If it's a weak swimmer, I just assume they don't know anything and then I just tell them everything. So (laughs) it kind of depends on the student. Um, And then the day of, you want to talk through day of stuff and and on that, like after the mission planning and pre-brief. Right. So, So usually the day before an entire day of mission planning and then that next day you come in early uh, you'll get a, all the 
products together of maybe the targets that you're going to bomb, right? Get all that. And now you spend about an hour in the brief, what we call. So we, we rehearse the mission. We talk through all of the admin, the admin of to and how do you get to and from the airspace and then all of the tactics, how we're going to shoot missiles and drop bombs, all that. And then, then when we get back, what people don't realize. So, so that's really intense to brief that. Then when you go fly, that is also, it's not like we're just go up there and do loops to music. It is uh, very intense in the training. And then when you come back, you usually grab like, a protein bar and a cup of coffee and then you go into the debrief and you debrief for two three four or five hours worth of um, all of our systems get recorded and so we're able to put them on big screens and you can just it's like watching football or i guess american football footage uh where you can watch kind of play by play and you debrief okay was this the right decision that you made um, what type of error did you make? How can we make it so that you don't make that same mistake next time? And and it's very in depth. It's very detailed. Uh, it's uh, it's very intense because we demand perfection out of our students. And when you don't when you don't succeed in some of the missions that we do, if you drop the bomb in the wrong place, you can kill civilians or friendly forces versus the enemy. And so. Uh, that type of culture makes its way into the, the debrief where we take success very, very seriously and we debrief even just the littlest mistakes so that we can continue to get better and better. Yeah, so that's kind of the, 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 the start yeah. to finish of it is even when you're done debriefing as an instructor pilot, you usually have to go answer emails or talk to the schedulers or... Uh, go sit in the control tower to uh, work with the the tower operator. So there's just so many other ancillary, like outside of just sitting in the jet and having a good time, right? Our our missions are generally about an hour to, you know, if we hit a tanker, an hour to three hours long with the majority of them being about 1.2 or 1.3 hours. So mm. in that very short period of time, there is a, just a, huge amount of work and preparation that goes into getting there in the first place. And then Drew uh, hinted at it, um, the debrief. So we plan, execute, debrief, but the debrief portion of it is, I mean, you've, you've been preparing for this. You then went and did a very physically demanding uh, thing. And now you're coming back and a lot of these younger students, so the, the more experience that you get, as an instructor, you can kind of look at the person sitting in front of you and go, you know, a three hour debrief is not what we need to be doing today. So, um, <laughs> you know, I call it, I call it the rule of threes. So at the end of the debrief, I, I look at the student and what I do to know if I did my job as an instructor, I ask the student, yo, dude, you tell me the number one thing you're going to work on next and then give me the next two things. So I want you to give me three things and I want them in and prior, I want them prioritized. And if the student can answer those top three things, then I know I did my job as an instructor pilot because they can pick out the things that they can get better at. The worst is we just went through, you know, 20 different big items and the student has no idea, you know, him maybe pulling in front of another jet as he's taxiing out, getting ready to take off. Maybe that was the biggest thing to them, but we didn't tell him. You know, and, and maybe the fact that they almost hit me in their jet when we were in flight, maybe they didn't even know that or it, they glossed over it. Right. So 
the important piece as an instructor, and I, you know, we're, we're everybody learns at a different pace, but as an in, as an instructor, you can tell some of the younger guys they kind of miss the forest for the trees when they're debriefing, and then the student feels bad. The next day, they go out and try to execute again, and it gets worse. And so, a lot of it is, <laughs> you know, just kind of fitting fitting that person into the syllabus and and helping them learn. And then I think a good thing that we do is in the air force, at least is if, you know, if I just can't get through with a student after two or three rides, then I'll just say, it's my fault. Let me have him fly with somebody else because maybe there's a different, maybe there's a personality issue or what have you, because it's not about, it's not about me anymore. It's about the student. Cause I've already been given all of this uh, information mm-hmm. and, and gone through the syllabus. Let's, let's have this guy uh, go fly with somebody else that they can actually learn. Hmm. Well, we've got a question, and so we're getting close to the end of the show. So, what's your favourite plane, civilian or military? What do you like flying? What's what's been your favourite? Well, I mean, that's kind of that's kind of it should be an easy question if you're a fighter pilot because mine's the F sixteen because I fly the F sixteen. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> It's and there, there's also there's like a brotherly brother brotherly uh, camaraderie or or kind of challenge amongst planes. So when you fly the F sixteen, the F sixteen is the greatest plane in the world, and you make fun of every other plane because <laughs> you know they're inferior in, in one way or another, uh, and that's just how it rolls. But I did I did like your guess. Um, the SR seventy one Blackbird is an amazing manly just beast of an airplane. Yeah. So that is a very cool airplane. I mean, the the F twenty two and the Eurofighter, phenomenal fighter jets. Um, there are there are so many cool airplanes, but the F sixteen is by far the best, of course. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know. I know. We mentioned this when when you had when I do my show, but um, where I used to live up um, just outside Milton Keynes, we used to have Upper Hayford uh, Air Base that was wasn't far, and uh, um, I was right underneath the flight path uh, from when they were coming in and landing and taking off of the F-111s. Ooh, that's cool. That's a big, that's, that's a big girl. That's a little while ago, but um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so we used to have the F-111s go over the house and, and I can remember the night they went over and, and bombed Baghdad for the first time in, in, the, mm. in the first Gulf War. Or they, were, they took off for that mission anyway. They bombed somewhere over the middle east mm. uh, and then they came back a little while later wow so guys it's been an absolute pleasure having you on it's been fascinating and um yeah got any last plugs you want to put for your book where can people find the book single seat yeah minded? so yes yeah, so single seat wisdom is the book series. They're written by um, fighter pilots. Um, you can find everything at singleseatmindset.com. Um, that's the the launch pad. So singleseatmindset.com. It's single as in like one, <laughs> just in case you can't hear that spelled right with an S, and then seat single seat because we're single seat fighter pilots. Uh, so singleseatmindset.com. Outside of that, though, Tim, I think if I was listening to this at the end, you know, and you, and maybe you had a family member that had PTSD or has issues, I think something to 
something to realize because I have and had family members that have gone through trauma and a lot of people want to know what, what can I do? How can I help? And I think the important piece and, and we hinted at it, but just so everybody's clear, the individual that's going through that trauma needs to be able to identify that and say that they have a problem. And that's the first step. And that is usually the most frustrating step. But if that person can say, um, like you said earlier, right? Like, it's okay not to be okay, or just to say, hey, I'm not quite right. I'm, you know, I'm at 70% right now. If they can get to that piece, the VA, the Veterans Association in America is just as backed up and just as bureaucratic as any other ones around the world. However, there are here in America specifically, and I don't know what it's like for you guys there, there are a ton of civilian uh, charities that have been set up that are doing phenomenal work and those organizations can help you immediately. So I would say if the person first step is the person can go, I have a problem or I'm just not quite right. And you can voice that then people can start going, well, Hey, can we feed you this? And I would look, especially in the U S I would look for civilian organizations for, for, for help first, because a lot of them are chaired, founded and run by veterans that have already gone through all of that stuff. And they know the VA is broken. They know it's backed up and they know that you're just another number. So I would say to give hope for people that are looking for help, look elsewhere. If you, if you, if you get a one year date in the future, don't lose hope. Just don't look in that direction, look in a different direction and, and look for help. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're blessed in this country with, I think there's somewhere in the region of 2,000 service charities that are out there to wow. help service people, whether they're yep. serving or whether they're retired. Um, there, there is an abundance of help out there. And uh, that's terrific, guys. Thank you so much. This has been really a real pleasure having you guys on. Thanks for having us, so, Tim. Yeah, yep. appreciate you. I'll catch up with you in a minute. I'm just going to close the show. Sure. So let's have a quick uh, quick flick through the, uh, the the chat box here. So there's been a, a few bits and pieces going on. So thank you guys for for sticking in your comments and stuff in the in the chat box. It's it, it's invaluable for us. So just coming up to the end of the show. So, um, without further ado, just want to give another quick plug for my for my my book. My book. Look, I'm an author. I'm a published author, along with sixteen other um, hosts that um, have put together this this mastery of a of a host. If you want to become a host on a on a channel like this, that's the book to get. Trust me. That's the one you need. That'll tell you all the real gems of of of, of perfecting the craft of being a, a host. And uh, if you are looking at being a host, you've got two of these, one of these, use them in that proportion and you won't go far wrong. Um, what else? Coming up in the, in the next couple of weeks, next week I've got uh, some firefighters coming on and they're going to be talking about how they deal with mental health. Uh, the following week, I've got Service Dogs UK for PTSD. 
and and there's a great little charity that provide uh, dogs to guys that's got complex PTSD needs and they work together with the dog and the, the, the veteran um, and just bring them on um, to be um, to help basically so until um, Tuesday we've got the the amazing quizzes the awesome quizzes and fun facts got another one coming to you next week on Tuesday at 9 o'clock uh, Greenwich Mean Time and Next Thursday, again, starting at 7 o'clock, Greenwich Mead time, we've got a firefighter special. So until then, TTFN, ta-ta for now. The Tim Heal Thirsty Thursday live stream from 7 until 9 weekly. Welcome to the Tim Heal podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you.